You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 16th of August 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, Turkey applies the defibrillators to its currency. Will it work? My guests Ivor Geber and Peter Goodman will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including a low-level Chinese delegation is sent to meet an inconsequential American official. Is this the beginning of the end of the trade war? And why governments like Bangladesh's can never figure out that locking up journalists is the surest route to get criticized by international media like this and the absolute least she deserves farewell aretha franklin that's all coming up on midori house on monocle 24 right now And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Ivor Geber, Professor of Political Journalism at the University of Sussex, and Peter Goodman, Global Economic Correspondent for the New York Times. Welcome both. And we will start in Turkey, where Finance Minister and Presidential Son-in-Law, possibly not coincidentally, Berat Albayrak has been speaking today, attempting to conjure phrases sufficiently reassuring to arrest the recent vertiginous slide of the Turkish lira. Markets at least have liked what they heard. The lira is up about four and a half percent against the US dollar today, but it's still down by a fifth on where it was a month ago and by nearly half on where it was a year ago. It would therefore seem optimistic to declare the crisis over, still more so to suggest that the relationship between Ankara and Washington in particular is where it might ideally be. Uh, Peter, first of all, how important was this speech today? It had been much ballyhooed. A lot of people were claiming to set great store uh, in what Mr. Albayrak might say or not say. Well, it was moderately important, but the markets really don't care about very much now uh, other than whether there is an independent central bank in Turkey and whether Turkey's going to go ahead and lift interest rates. And and there's sort of a binary quality to this, plus the, the question of whether we'll hear anything crazy. We didn't hear anything crazy, and so the lira stabilized somewhat because the lira has been oversold. I mean, the, the markets are fleeing Turkey uh, with, with real terror. They don't have faith that there is... Uh, rational adult economic supervision in Turkey. So anybody with money who can get it out of the country is getting it out fast. And, you know, the economists say that that's overshot the fundamental value of the lira. But this thing is not over until the markets either regain some confidence in the people running Turkey or until things spiral out of control to the extent that there's a full on crisis where Turkey perhaps has to ask for help from the IMF. Uh, well, on that subject, uh, I've, uh, uh, Mr. Albayrak was at pains to say that Turkey would not be soliciting help of the IMF. He also said that there would not be currency controls imposed, and those seem to be the two things which uh, made the markets happier, at least 4.5% happier than they were yesterday. But but has he now uh, painted himself into a bit of a corner there, supposing something else, perhaps something entirely unforeseen, was to prompt a further run on the lira? Uh, have they now cut themselves off a couple of plausible options, especially following President Erdogan's uh, fairly trenchant uh, coming out against hiking interest rates. 
Yeah, but he's also given himself, I think, the first glimmers of an escape route. His speech in terms of relations with America was certainly more conciliatory than anything we've heard from the president. Whether he was actually delivering a message on behalf of the president, maybe Erdogan was thinking he's backed himself into the corners you've just described. It seems to me that we're watching two things in action. There are the harsh economic realities or financial realities that you've referred to that the markets are up to, but there's also the very complex complicated politics of in, of Turkey both internally and externally um, because the, the 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 complexities now of the Middle East power game which Turkey used to keep keep at distance you know are now they are now very engaged with and and working out quite your next move when you've got powerful friends and enemies, I think, is rather complex. So this more conciliatory tone, I think, in political terms, whether how it will affect the markets, I don't know, but in political terms, seems to me actually a sensible move. Um, Peter, Turkey is, to, to further that point that Ivor raises about the relationship with the United States, Turkey is nominally at least an ally of the United States and of the wider West in as much as it is a member of NATO. But at the moment, how important would either President Trump or President Erdogan uh, see that relationship as being? Well, I think you've put your finger on a key question because I, I, I think somewhat perversely both Erdogan and Trump right now benefit benefit from bad relations with one another in the sense that, you know, Erdogan understands that any move economically is a bad one. He's looking at a menu that's got all bad options. He can either do what international investors are demanding and he can hike interest rates dramatically and the result will be a painful and immediate recession. Growth will ground to a halt, borrowing rates will soar uh, and, and the economy will, will suffer. People will be thrown out of work, businesses will lose sales and, and so on. Or he can hold the course and continue to blame outsiders for his problems and hope that somehow something changes. But what's likely to happen is a continued depreciation of the value of the Turkish lira, more inflation. And that's probably going to lead to a recession as well. So the question is, what does he do about that? Trump has given him a perfect uh, way to pass the blame to somebody else. I mean, this is Trump has sort of given him something right out of the Castro playbook where he can say, look at this, look at this outside bully. I, I mean, this is what Erdogan does and has done successfully for more than a decade. He stirs up nationalist passions. The outside is trying to stop us from achieving our greatness. Trump just handed him that. Now, Trump, of course, seems to benefit fit uh, from from his base, and it's an increasingly narrow base in the United States, from striking this posture of courage, we're not going to be cheated anymore in the world economy, we're done with the Europeans freeloading through NATO commitments, we're done getting ripped off by China or Turkey, whoever it is we're talking about uh, for the day. There's not a lot of sophistication to these arguments, but the passion and, and the appearance of, of confrontation from Trump ju- does seem to be rewarded by his base. Um, Ivor, is it still... Uh... Uh, or is the, the the West still kidding itself at this point to think of Turkey as an ally? Well, that, that's a very good question. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. If you just look at the trajectory of the Syrian war, sometimes the Syrians were, were, were the good guys. Sorry, sometimes the Turks were the good guys and sometimes they weren't. I mean, they've just formed or strengthened their alliance with Qatar in terms of its dispute with um, Saudi Arabia and its allies, and this is an odd one if you take it as a, if you regard that dispute as something relatively simple, but it's not. Um, the Shiite-Sunni so-called divide seems to be increasingly irrelevant here, where Iran, 
the heartland of, 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 of Shiism, is now close to Turkey and Qatar, um, which means all of those analysis which described what was going on in Syria as basically a struggle within Islam maybe have got it wrong. There is a struggle which is geopolitical. Of course, the Russians have made it very clear which side they're on. They're on the winning side, and they'll make sure that whichever side they are, it is. And I think they've left the Americans completely wrong-footed. Um, and Turkey, to answer your original question, also will play it as it suits. I mean, they are distracted by the Kurdish issue because they regard that as the single most important aspect of the, the current balance of power in the Middle East, whether it is or not is another matter. So I think the West has got a real problem with Turkey, not just in terms of the, what we've been immediately describing, but in terms of where, where, where will it see its long-term strategic interests? I don't know. Well, on that uh, uncertain note, let's move along uh, and look at the latest from another front in the United States ongoing argument with everybody. China is to send a trade delegation to the US later this month for a new round of talks, the unpromising backdrop to which is, of course, the United States' imposition of tariffs on $50 billion worth of Chinese goods and China's responses in kind, and still further US tariffs are threatened. China's Vice Commerce Minister Wang Xiaowen, me neither, will lead the visiting team and will be met by the U.S. Treasury Undersecretary, it says here, David Molpas. Um, Peter, I, 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 these are not terrifically high-level talks. Oh, uh, I mean, this, David this, Molpas this, is clearly the decider. This is not the equivalent, for example, of Mao going to Nixon, is it? This is certainly uh, something short of that. Uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's unclear what it is they're even discussing. I mean, one, one of the... Well, who are you would be a good start. Y- yes, nice to meet you. <laughs> Uh, who stood down some exactly. time ago, but that's a very bad joke. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, what, what, what is it that you do and so on? I mean, there's no end of things they could talk about. I mean, the question is, what's the beginning of things that they talk about? Because no real demands have been enunciated. I mean, Trump kicked off this trade war by slapping punitive tariffs on Chinese goods. He cited national security in imposing tariffs on steel and aluminum from everyone, as if Americans are mortally threatened by the fact that they buy steel from Canada. Uh, we're now finally getting to the meat of the issue, which is China. And there is no question that China poses uh, some fairly profound challenges to the global trading system. But the only thing that the Trump administration has said consistently it wants from China is stop stealing our intellectual property, stop forcing our companies to transfer technology to you. How do you turn that into a real demand? The Trump administration has also said, we want to balance out the terms of trade. We, we want a smaller bilateral trade deficit and eventually one day even balanced trade. Well, the only way China can do that is to go back to the mode of economic management that has delivered decades of lectures from American officials about how the state isn't supposed to be managing the economy. It's supposed to be the market. So suddenly Chinese officials are presumably asked to you know, promise that we're going to sell X amount of steel, we're going to buy Y volume of soybeans. I mean, this doesn't make for a particularly coherent exchange. Um, Ivor, is I mean, th- this can't really do any harm, can it? I mean, it's 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 it's, it's, a, it's a nice you know we, you know few days away for Wang Xiaowen and his colleagues. Washington's quite nice this time of year. Lots of good museums and so forth. I mean, but is there the, perhaps the beginning of an end here? Well, I, I'm actually going to risk um, a, a suggestion, only a oh, suggestion. Go on. <laughs> um, 
that maybe whether it's Trump or somebody in the White House has said, look, this is you're, you're getting in very deep here, international tra- real international trade war, not messing around with the Europeans, so to speak. Um, and maybe the way out of it is to have it down the political agenda, have a lower level working negotiation where if it fails it's not a big humiliation but you know it's the work of Sherpas at summits these are the Sherpas they're doing the hard lifting and then Trump and Lee will emerge in a month's time and shake hands and describe each other as their best ever buddies so you know I won't say let's be optimistic but there is a there might be method in this madness well let's pick that idea uh, that 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 surge of optimism up and run with it Peter Is it clear to you, or indeed to anybody, where Donald Trump thinks he is going with this, uh, his trade war with China? Because it's it's not been terribly clear what he sees as uh, victory conditions, if you will. It's not at all clear. And in fact, it seems pretty clear that there's debate about that very question within the administration. So Bob Lighthizer, who's the U.S. trade representative, he seems truly to care about the forced technology transfer issue. He wants to see China punished for stealing dealing intellectual property, not just from the United States, from Europe, from other producers but of th- that right there in itself in isolation is not an unreasonable ambition, Correct. is it? And, and China must surely realize that if it wants to be a grown-up trading with partner with the world, it needs to start that, that, taking that stuff seriously. That's a real seriously. issue in the global trading system. Because no, aside no from question. anything else, as time ticks forward, China is going to have intellectual property it wants to protect. W- without question. I mean, one, one could argue that's the thing that the Americans ought to really be focusing on. The problem is that they've alienated the trade partners like Europe, uh, who could potentially go along as part of a united front with the U.S. to pressure China by slapping punitive tariffs willy-nilly on on multiple trade partners on steel and and aluminum, on a range of, of other goods. So to come back to your original question, is there a coherent strategy? Well, Trump and Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, and Peter Navarro, who's the author of this book called Death by China, Trump's Special Advisor on Trade, they seem to be obsessed with the bilateral trade deficit. Most mainstream economists will tell you there's very little to no meaning in any bilateral trade deficit. I mean, we all run trade deficits with our local grocery store. They never buy anything from us, but we assume the money circulates and, and, and we all we all benefit. With China, you know, there's more to be said about that. But But nonetheless, if you're focused on the one hand on bilateral trade deficits and on the other on a real issue like forced technology transfers, it's hard to fashion a coherent set of demands. Um, Ivor, yesterday, uh, with all due respect to the the, the futility of trying to divine meaning in President Trump's Twitter feed, he did tweet that other countries, redundant capital C on countries, should not be allowed to come in and steal the wealth of our great USA, full stop, no longer exclamation mark. Is it clear that he actually understands how trade works? Well, actually, I thought you were going to quote another tweet that I'm looking oh, at. go on, please. Which is, most Americans thought their country was built on the great movement West <laughs> or the American Constitution or freedom of the media or whatever. But no, Donald Trump says our country was built on tariffs. It's a, a debatable proposition. Which is a bizarre. And you can't actually see people rallying to a banner that says tariffs. Does he have... A, a a grasp on what he's trying to do. I mean, I think he, it's an emotional intelligence that he has. He knows that his base feels that for too long they have been cheated, 
uh, shortchanged. They have kept the world going by allowing them to do rotten trade deals. And he's responding to that in an emotional way, saying, I feel your pain. We're going to get back on these so-and-sos. We're going to get good deals. I mean, OK, as, as Peter's done here, it's economic nonsense. But, it, you know, that's what he's built his political rise on, you know, connecting with people, saying things that people want to hear. And this is an example. But delivering... You know, that's a bit more difficult. So a final quick thought on this, Peter, and looking at his base, who Ivor invokes there, is it clear or is there any sense at all that the fact that China, you know, and the Chinese Communist Party say whatever else you will about them, they're not stupid. Their retaliatory tariffs quite actually almost wittily uh, uh, targeted Trump's base. Um, Is there any indication yet that Trump's base, whose businesses have taken a huge whack as a result of his policies, are, are blaming him? Well, actually, it's similar to the dynamic that we've been discussing in Turkey with Erdogan able to blame his economic problems on the outsiders. So, no, to answer your question, the preliminary seems to be from reporters who've gone out and talked to factory workers in, you know, places like GM plants that buy steel – Uh, where the steel now costs more because of these tariffs and their jobs are potentially at risk. Uh, People like that who supported Trump in 2016 seem to buy the Trump argument that this is almost a holy war. You know, we've been getting, we've had a trade war, the Trump people will tell you consistently, for decades. We're just finally fighting back. We didn't start this. And yes, there's going to be some pain along the way. We may even lose some jobs along the way, but eventually we will force all this factory production back to the United States. And the base seems to buy into that narrative. And let's remember that this is a base that's also very responsive to the notion that Americans are being cheated by immigrants streaming over the border, raping women, setting up gangs on every corner. I mean, the evidence to the contrary. Crime is at an all-time low in many American cities. Uh, immigration, in fact, is is, is low uh, as, uh, as people are finding more to do at home and as border enforcement has seemed to be working over recent years. But the Trump base is really into this idea that the U.S. is under threat. So when you suddenly blame people on the other side of the world who, you know, are too often depicted uh, in in racist terms as ants or, you know, less than human toiling away in these factories, that's that's a very appealing uh, argument to the Trump base. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Ivor Gaber and Peter Goodman. Do stay tuned. Russia is a large and unwieldy beast, but in recent decades it's been tamed by President Vladimir Putin, who's deftly tightened his grip on power. To find more about where Russia finds itself today, from its soft power to its economy, watch our animated nation survey, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You are back with Midori House, with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Ivor Gaber and Peter Goodman. Hundreds of newspapers across America today have published similar editorials affirming the importance of a free press to a democracy, a response to a prolific and increasingly deranged abuse by their president. American journalists, however, enjoy the luxury of constitutional protection. Among their colleagues who can only dream of such are the journalists of Bangladesh, one of whom, the renowned photographer Shahid al-Alam, has been arrested after taking pictures of recent student demonstrations. He is, regrettably, far from the first critic of Bangladesh's government to find themselves in prison in recent times. Um, Ivor, I'm... 
I'm always and remained perplexed uh, when governments do this uh, because it's they're failing to learn that that an, that ancient lesson, aren't they? Like, don't pick a fight with somebody who buys ink by the barrel. Uh, by arresting uh, Mr. Alum, who is a very well-known and long-renowned photographer, they just attract further attention to the repression in which they are engaged, don't they? They do, but it's a non-learning animal. I mean, I'm involved in World Press Freedom Activities um, at UNESCO in Paris, and it's a constant fight. It's a hamster wheel in some extent. You One, one government recognises that and starts to dialogue with the media and starts to free journalists whilst at the same time behind your back. Because Bangladesh did enjoy a period after the fall of the dictatorship of relative media freedom. And, I mean, it's a bit like foreign wars. This is a, a less dangerous one. Whenever you're, a government is under pressure, start locking up the journalists. Uh, the parallels with America are slightly frightening. Um, and I think in this particular case, um, perhaps listeners might need, will recall that he was locked up on the pretext. He's been a thorn in the side of the Bangladeshi government for some time because he believes in freedom of expression and so forth. But he was locked up at this occasion for photographing school children demonstrating against the wild traffic in Dhaka, which had killed children, was uncontrolled because policemen took bribes. And these kids were trying to say, no, we want to live. He took photos of it and was locked up for provo allegedly provoking the riots or whatever. I mean, it is shameful. And I have to say, I like your analogy of don't pick a fight with those who are ordering by that, but it doesn't seem to work. The press freedom is constantly being eroded by governments around the world whether it's Russia, China, or now America and Bangladesh. But it does, in instances like this, strike me as weird, because had they not arrested this photographer, and it's, it's possibly to our discredit, but there it is, we would not be therefore trying to figure out what he was taking photographs of, and therefore we would not be discussing the fact that traffic in Dhaka in Bangladesh is terrible because the traffic cops are bent. Um, Peter, does it actually work ever, just from the point of view of the governments who are ordering the, the arrest or harassment of journalists, does does it, does it make sense? Just from a, leaving us, I mean, I think we can probably all agree as journalists that we're against it, but I'm, I'm trying to understand it from the other side. Does but it can work? Can you successfully does run it... an authoritarian society and prevent information from getting out? I think the answer is clearly yes. I mean, this may not be a good example of that, to your point. Yes, we're sitting here discussing the fact that the traffic cops in, in Dhaka are corrupt, and uh, that's thanks to the locking up of this photojournalist. I just spent a week in, in Egypt where I'm told that virtually everyone uh, doing serious investigative reporting in the period after the Arab Spring uh, is now uh, sitting either at home terrified, no longer doing journalism, or in a prison cell. So there's a successful example of information not getting out. Uh, because of fear. Turkey is another place where Indeed, journalists so. are, are regularly arrested, regularly threatened, and uh, people people are scared. And there's no question that in a place where journalists who you know have families and bills to pay, like like everybody else, uh, make a calculation of whether this is really worth it, uh, you you have you have to assume that there's some who are, who are thinking it's it it simply isn't worth it. The same goes for places like Mexico. Uh, the same goes for places like Pakistan. I mean, this is a dangerous job in a, in a lot of the world. Uh, well, the same goes, in fact, for quite a few EU countries at the at the risk of using this opportunity to plug a series of pieces I've written for 
from Monocle's uh, Summer Weekly, uh, which the first, episode, first issue of which is on a newsstand uh, near you now. Uh, but Ivor, to, to ask, I guess, the same question from a different perspective about where is the upside of this uh, for governments? Is there, in fact, a downside? Bangladesh is currently ranked 146th for press freedom by Reporter Sam Frontier, which is a pretty dismal ranking. Is there a relationship uh, that governments such as Bangladesh's should be able to see between improving a nation and freeing its press? Well, I mean, I've, just to pick up, yeah, China is a shameful example though, where you can have complete um, control of the media in every aspect. You, you make an annoyingly valid point. And hmm. have economic stability, economic growth, and no real political cost. Um, I would love to say yes. Not the, yet, anyway. Not yet. Anyway, where China's concerned. There is that, that, that shoe that has not dropped in China about a burgeoning middle class demanding greater freedoms but, of that sort. But they've been a burgeoning middle class for 20 years and there's not much sign of them demanding anything. I have a, a lot of Chinese students in my um, uh, in my classes um, and I'm, I'm desperate for them to tell me what an outrageous dictatorship China is. Now, maybe they're too sensible to say that. But, you know, they all want to be television presenters and, and, and read the news that's given to them from China Central. Um, it's depressing. Can I just say, since you did a plug, to our, um, <laughs> the, the photographs that um, Shadoyle has... Um, Alarm has taken a brilliant. There's a brilliant display of them on both the BBC website and the New York Times website. There is indeed graphic. So I just wanted to draw attention to that because actually it's a depressing situation, and that's the only positive aspect of it I can think of. Just a final thought on this, Peter. Is it arguable? Do you think that uh, national governments around the world who are that way inclined uh, in the last couple of years are taking a cue from the President of the United States? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that the president of the United States is proud that the hashtag fake news, which he's used to try to protect himself from bad news that's uh, being reported by mainstream media in the States, has now gone uh, international. And so uh, many autocrats are, are, are using that very phrase. And Trump is very proud of this. I mean, I, I think these dynamics are, are feeding off of themselves. OK, well, finally tonight, uh, it is, sadly, Vale Aretha Franklin, who has died today age 76. Uh, she was routinely acclaimed as the greatest singer of popular song who ever lived, and it is a verdict that you would want to think long and hard about before disputing. There is uh, or will be more coverage uh, of Aretha Franklin and an extended obituary on tonight's Daily, I believe. But I, I, I did want to ask you both first. Uh, it, it's She's one of those artists about whom everything, all the all the obvious stuff, uh, has already been said or is being said, and and it's all true. I mean, you, you, it would be futile trying to adopt a a revisionist approach to the the life and works of Aretha Franklin. But I'm always interested in artists like her. What people's first uh, encounter with them was. Ivor, can you remember like he, the, the the first time and in what circumstances you would have heard her? <laughs> Um, I'm reluctant to say I was probably not totally conscious when that music <laughs> into my awareness. But I mean, uh, God, this is re revealing age, isn't it? But that was the music I grew up on. Whether it was Aretha Franklin or any of the other Motown or R&B music, it's difficult to remember. I, I, um, I, I recently saw Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, who are still um, battling away. With her. Whether it's the I'm sure it's the original Martha Reeves. I'm not quite sure about the Vandellas. But that music was so much part of... The experience of 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 
growing up at, at that period. It's difficult to pinpoint. No, I can't remember when I first heard Aretha Franklin, but, but Peter's heard her quite more recently. <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I had the pleasure of seeing her twice, once at Constitution Hall in Washington, D.C. when I lived there, and once with my wife at Radio City Music Hall uh, in New York, where I grew up. But what, what I remember was, as a kid, you know, back in the days of black and white television, five or six years old at my parents' apartment on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, uh, right after the test pattern went off, this is before you know television is 24 hours, they would beam in a, go- a gospel choir from one of the churches in Harlem. And I was just totally uh, blown away by this music. And then when I started listening to AM uh, Top 40 radio, I do remember hearing Aretha for the first time. It was respect and it was just, just an enthralling experience. But, uh, I mean... I have to say, reading the the early obituaries, if you like, she had a tough old life, didn't she? Sure. By the time she was 15, she had two children. Her father, who seems a rather dominant figure, was shot dead. I mean, it might be cliched, but she certainly didn't have it easy. And maybe that is part of the reason that she had that authenticity in the, her voice, that, that sense of cliche, cliche, the ghetto. But, you know... It, it sort of rubbed off on her, and you you sensed it. So this was no golden, no 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 easy ride she had. Uh, it indeed was not. I I was myself was of that generation uh, who I'm pretty. I'm sure I would have heard her or heard of her, but really my first encounter with her in full cry was uh, that extraordinary cameo in the Blues Brothers, uh, and and it was that and mm. the other artists in the Blues Brothers that I can remember sending me sort of scurrying through secondhand record stores uh, in Sydney, uh, as was the style at the time, uh, trying to find find more of where that came from. Um, she will be playing us out. That does bring us to the end of today's show. Ivor Gaber and Peter Goodman, thanks for joining us. This was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, reduced by Julia Webster, uh, produced, researched rather by Julia Webster, to try me trying to pronounce three words at once. And our studio manager was Christy Evans. More music next at 1900. It's The Urbanist with Andrew Tuck. More on The Daily at 2200 of the day's main stories. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow. Playing us out, this is, of course, Aretha Franklin. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.